If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. Welcome back to part two of James Madison. In this episode, you're going to hear about Madison's decisive response to American naval men being dragged from their ships and being forced into British service. You'll also learn why the Secretary of the Navy made him tuck two pistols into his belt before he was about to walk onto a battlefield unarmed. And finally, why he offered me oyster-flavored ice cream. Yes, that was a portrait of George Washington, a very large one, in fact, that she ordered to be broken out of the frame in order to get it out in time so that the British wouldn't capture it and use it as a war trophy and flash it in our face all the time and try and embarrass us. I hadn't even thought about that. That would be like a war trophy. That would be something, there would be some guy that would, there would be some general or something that would probably just nail that on his wall. Say we tore this out of the executive mansion. That's oh, incredible. They, 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 get, they got a couple of war trophies for themselves. They got one of my hats, and they also got the seat cushion that Mrs. Madison sat in at the tiny room table. Well, why would they take a seat cushion? Well, you can have to leave that to your imagination. Oh, yeah. Okay, I guess. <laughs> now we're going back to the depravity of man that you mentioned earlier. <laughs> I suppose. We should keep this conversation between two men. Most definitely. Yeah, most definitely. I do the best I can with that, for sure. I will tell you this, your wife will never hear it. I'll guarantee that. In the War of 1812, this was right in the middle or in the early stages of your presidency. How did that, what started that? Where did this come from? It's just, it's amazing that we have this huge war with Britain to get our independence, and all of a sudden, now we're right back into another war with them. Which, unbelievably, we come out on top again, but what started it? The fact that Great Britain was not adhering to the treaty principles, not only of the treaty that ended the war, the Treaty of Paris in 1783, but also the one that John Jay negotiated in 1795. So they were still impressing our sailors, they were still occupying our western territories, they were still arming our native peoples to wreak havoc out in the Western territories. So it was very clear that they were just going to stay. And they were going to just lay in wait. And the way I looked at it was in a very sort of philosophical way, wait and ambush for an opportunity to retake us, that they didn't think that our independence would last and it would be easy to reclaim the territory. So... We did a series of embargoes that goes all the way back to Mr. Jefferson's presidency, but the embargoes were a large failure. They hurt us more than anything else. So we were backed into a corner, literally, where I had to say, we may not be prepared in time, but we're going to have to take action now. And so I had to ask Congress for a declaration of war. And they were, they had a lot of representatives in Congress that were young bucks, so to speak, that had no war experience, but they were gunning, so to speak, for an armed conflict. And they were very persuasive in the Congress. So when I asked for a declaration of war, they gave it, oh, and 
just over a week, they approved it. And so we declared war. When you say you said they were impressing your sailors, I'm not sure what you mean by that. Oh, that means that the British or Royal Navy, as I should properly call it, considers it proper protocol to invade our ships and other ships of other nations looking for sailors that are really British subjects and they have a right to take them. And not only that, they can take anyone they want to, which includes our American citizens serving on American ships for an American Navy. And we just couldn't stand for that. So the British were saying that the Royal Navy was saying that they could board any ship they wanted to. And if there were men on the ship, they could just take the men and do what they wanted to with them as well. Where did that come from? Because was there not, after the Revolutionary War and the Treaty of Paris, wasn't there a time of relative peace between us and the English? Or not? Were we always in, on the edge of a dispute with them? As you say, they were lying in wait. No, economically, we were realigning with them, especially in the northeastern states that were very commerce-based. And Great Britain had always been the most favored trading partner because they were the most powerful country in the world. And that's part of what created a division within our country was the type of livelihoods that the states in the northern parts conducted were different than the ones livelihoods that were conducted in the southern parts. So from a trade perspective, Great Britain became an immediate friend again, in a way, but not with their overt actions. And that's one of, the, one of the things of monarchy is that they colonize, Great Britain colonizes all over the world. So that when that's the case, they need a very strong navy. Where you say that the United States, you see us as a defensive power, the, it sounds like the English were exactly the opposite. They were always out colonizing, always out looking for their next ter- territory, ways to, to feed the monster, so to speak. Yes, their, their power is all over the world, as I said. So why all of a sudden, though? It, I guess I'm still confused on that. Why all of a sudden do we have this revival of an economy between us, and all of a sudden they just say, okay, we're going to start taking over your ships and we're going to start taking your sailors and we do what we want. And we're going to line up on your borders and wait for something to happen so we can come in and crush you guys. Why all of a sudden? What was the big change? Did they have a financial problem or was there a change in the monarchy? Was King, Who was the king at that time? Maybe that had something to do with it. No, King George was still in power. It wasn't all of a sudden, though, Mr. Dean. Everything happens in a long progression. You can have a coup d'etat or something like that is a quick overtaking by the military. But that was not the case for us. It was always a gradual evolutionary process to come to the conclusions that we came to. Our economy was not good after the war. We were highly in debt. So Great Britain was fine. We wanted to... The Federalists, for example, wanted to maintain a large part of the economy's progress with industrial improvements, mechanization of things, commercial interests, stock prices, speculation in land, other evolutionary practices and growing pains of the country started to 
show themselves. And it came down to the treaty stipulations that were not being respected, which were the four main reasons that I just gave you, the continued impressment of the sales. All these things were in the treaty. They were already agreed to. And Great Britain was completely ignoring their responsibility to upholding them. And we weren't going to stand for that. So how did, as you are now leading the United States into this second war and calling for this declaration of war, did you serve on the battlefield at some point? Where does your skill set to be able to do that come from? Oh, I don't have much of a skill set in that, Mr. Dean. The only time I served in the military was part of my father's militia prior to our revolution against the Great Britain. And I never served on the field of battle. The only time I rode onto the field of battle was the situation I had described just a few minutes ago in Bladensboro, Maryland in 18 and 12. And technically, I'm the commander-in-chief. And so I went out there because it was chaotic, and I wanted to find out what was going on and see if I could get order back in, into place because, quite honestly, our military men were not rising to the occasion. And so that's really the only time that I was on the field of battle. I didn't fire a musket. I did have two pistols with me, however, because the Secretary of the Navy insisted that I take my own and his so that I could protect myself. I was going to ride out there with no weapons at all. He says, no, Mr. President, you need to have some defense on your person. So I was riding there with two pistols stuck in my belt. And they had me fall back a mile behind the main lines, and the British were just overpowering our, and awing us with this new technology that they brought over called Congreve rockets. And it was almost a mesmerizing experience, and it scared the heck out of our soldiers because the rockets would go up there and explode at different time intervals, and nobody knew where they would, were going to explode, and it caused fear in our soldiers. And so in that situation the men just fell apart and ran back towards the federal city. It was really quite horrible. Yeah, fighting the British sounds horrible, but what you're describing sounds even worse because the technology had increased, and I suppose they had some time to kind of survey, like you were saying, as they were watching and maybe look for our weaknesses, which th there were plenty of holes in the ship that needed to be plugged. What do you I want to take umbrance with that in one regard. This was not as protracted a war as our cause was to gain our freedom initially. If you were to think about the shot that was fired on Lexington Green in 17 and 75 to the implementation of the peace treaty, which was not officially signed off by us until early 17 and 84, that's eight odd years of conflict. The war beginning in 1812 lasted about a year and a half. And one thing that was an egregious action taken by the British military that did not happen in the War of 12 was the prison ships. The, men, the number of men who died of disease and sickness and starvation, whether it was on prison ships or not, but the main point I'm making is the atrocities that the prison ships presented was an example of the tragedy of war, the, the violence of war, the suffering that war brings. 
So that there is that difference. I do want to make the point that in the protactic nature of the war that resulted in our freedom from Great Britain to become a country of our own differed from the perspective that we were already a country with some things already in place economically and militarily, even though militarily it was rather weak. It was not the same situation at all. And the specific of the Congreve rockets does not make it harder or more difficult than what we went through to gain our independence from Great Britain. No, that makes sense. And the prison ships was something that we did not have in the War of 1812. And those were just stuffed full of people literally left there to rot. I don't understand what a prison ship is. They're taking Americans and putting them on the prison ships? Are these when they take the soldiers? What does that explain that? Well, especially in New York Harbor, in the island of Manhattan. Are you familiar with the island of Manhattan? Definitely. All right. There's the East River and there's the Hudson River on the west of the island of Manhattan. And there was a very famous prison ship called the Jersey, which was simply anchored in East River. And prisoners of war were housed there. They weren't treated as human beings. Oh, wow. There was rat, it was infested with rats. People were consumed with their own excrement, their own vomit. They had no cleanliness. They barely had any clothes. They were mistreated physically. And it's not something that every citizen understands was an example of British cruelty. Was King George cruel? Personally, I don't think so. I think the military can be cruel. Our allegiance as British subjects to King George III was also an allegiance to the governmental system in Parliament. And so Parliament can make rules and then change them. And that is a problematic process. King George, as a person, was somewhat lauded by the subjects over in Great Britain. And much of the attitudes that we did not like about Great Britain resided in parliamentary procedures, not in the king himself. And the reason that we established a firm written constitution, the first one in world history, was because parliament could change their mind anytime they made a law and changed the law. So you really couldn't count on a law being permanent. It was at their discretion. I see. Let's talk about Mr. Jefferson for a minute. So this is probably going to, you might have some feelings about this, but obviously as a president for eight years and the condition that you left the country in, it seems like you've been on the right side of most of your decisions. That's what it looks like from a distance. And a lot of your decisions were the right direction. But there are people that that don't know a lot about history that kind of feel like you rode the coattails of Jefferson. What do you say about that? Well, I have to leave it to an informed and interested citizenry to find out the truth. It would be too aggressive on my part to be too defensive. My record speaks for itself. I was an advisor in much of my career, starting very early in state-level government. One of my strengths was internal diplomacy. I worked very well behind the scenes. And to make a military 
equivalent might be that I don't know what you'd call them. I think a second-in-command kind of person, whereas the commander-in-chief, which the president is as well, can make the ultimate decision. But his advisors may say, that's not such a good idea, Mr. President. And so I worked very good in that regard, and I got a lot of practice in that regard from state level to being a congressman to being his secretary of state and then being on my own as a two-term president. There were many issues that Mr. Jefferson and I disagreed on, and I don't consider myself. How did you describe with Mr. Jefferson? Just in, in the shadows, in, the, in Jefferson's shadow. I said riding on his coattails. That you were, uh, I'd say that I, could, I'd be ride, I would be in his shadow, but I would not be riding on his coattails. So, so, but he was in favor of me taking over his position because of all the different experience that I had that led up to a position of such importance as being the chief executive. I didn't seek it openly, but I felt that if it was to be that I would almost as Washington said, I'll give it my best shot. I don't have a charismatic personality. Jefferson, he does not have a, he has a more charismatic personality, but it's not overt. And I think part of it might be my size, the fact that I can't project my voice very well, that I use reason in my record, and I count on the intelligence of the people choose correctly based on the Republican system we developed and a very key word that's ingrained in that, and that's virtue. And I've said that if we don't have virtue, that we won't have a country. It's a, it's a chimerical combination of words. So the Republican system, which is one of the reasons why we are so curious to find out if it can continue so well under Mr. Monroe's presidency is can we keep our citizenry interested and informed? So I never took the stage overtly, but I never either was instructed by Jefferson to do anything that I didn't feel was correct on my own. For example, there's many differences between an eye and policy decisions where I counseled him even though he's eight years my senior, and I would consider him a mentor, especially in my early years. But there, we did not have universal agreement on many political issues. Are you and Jefferson friends? Oh, yes. We're very good friends. We'll be lifelong friends. We visit each other every summer. We met in 1776, and we enjoy each other's company very much. You use the word virtue over, and you've just said reason. Would you say that Jefferson is a virtuous man? Would you say that he is a man of reason? Indeed. He is somewhat of a polymath, as Franklin was. People don't maybe understand that he's an inventor as well. He's a planter. He loves experimentation. He knows architecture extremely well. He plays the violin. He invented a wheel to measure the plantation, crop rows. He invented a copying system where with a series of levers, you could copy as you were writing. It was automatically making a second copy. So he is a man of tremendous vision, but sometimes his practical in implementation of things needs some counsel. And that's yeah. what I tended to be good at. That's interesting. So that brings us to 
Mr. Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton, you, when it came time to, I don't know if the right word is sell, the, the Constitution to the 13 colonies, 13 to 13 states, I understand that you, Hamilton, and Mr. Jay wrote the papers that we call the Federalist Papers. I don't know if they called them that in your time. To try to let the citizenry know that this would be a good thing, the Constitution, I, I think. Can yes, you tell me correct. a little bit about that process? Who initiated that? Was that you? Or just tell me what comes to mind about that. The Federalist Essays were the brainchild of Mr. Hamilton. And he had arguably the same challenge that I did in his state of New York that I did in my state of Virginia. And that was we both had governors that did not want the implementation of the Constitution. In fact, my governor, Patrick Henry, didn't attend the Constitutional Convention. He was invited and decided not to come, and then he tried to prevent its ratification. So I had to go down and debate Mr. Henry in order to convince the people that it would be beneficial for Virginia, just as Hamilton had to debate in Poughkeepsie, New York, up the Hudson's River a bit, that the Constitution would be good for the state of New York because their governor, George Clinton, had a very strong hold that wanted to maintain the independence of New York to perpetuate the state's individual power. Same, same was true in Virginia. Patrick Henry was completely satisfied with maintaining the Old Dominion's stance in the Union. So the Federalist Essays were really, literally, a newspaper campaign designed for New Yorkers. I shouldn't have been a writer in the first place. He asked me because we had gotten to know each other in the transition from the Articles to the Constitution, and we have the same mindset at the time. And so he asked me because a couple of the other people didn't come up to snuff as far as he was concerned. Mr. Jay, of course, did. He would have contributed more, but he got terribly sick with rheumatoid arthritis throughout the process. So he wrote a few in the beginning and a few at the end. Yes, we called them the Federalist Essays, the Federalist Papers. They were published in, into a two-volume book and distributed especially to Virginia because of the help needed down there. That book, the first book was published, the first volume was published before all 85 essays were written. They were written anonymously by Publius, who was a Roman statesman. And so initially everyone thought it was a single person, whoever Publius was. But it was actually three of us and a Virginian stuck in there with two New Yorkers. So the argument of against the Constitution, it's hard to even imagine having an argument that you know, the Constitution isn't right for what we're trying to do in our time. But in your time, the argument w would have been, and I think you just said it, is that it creates one state, the United States, and it takes power away from the individuals. So the ones that are strong will get a little bit weaker, and the ones that are weaker will get a little bit stronger. I is that the argument, that just the states that have more power, that they would lose some of their power, or that it would be diluted? In general, I would say that's a good summation. The Anti-Federalists were very active immediately upon the Constitution's writing. They submitted papers to the press right away saying that it was bad to unify the country because it smacked of the past, that they saw that as a path towards monarchy again. 
to centralize the power in the executive branch they thought would eventually lead to an overreach in that executive branch as history had shown century to century and that it would lead back to a monarchy and that the people the we the people from the preamble to the constitution would not be fairly represented anymore so that is the basic premise yes yeah that makes complete sense and i could see that they did have good arguments but the federalist arguments were more persuasive ultimately it it really does make a lot of sense because power corrupts it just does and if you give more power to the federal government it would be easy to look at that and say this is not going to turn out well there would certainly be an argument for that that makes sense so mr hamilton initiated that and then he asked you to participate along with mr j what is your what are your feelings of mr hamilton it seems like you've gone both ways with him mr hamilton is gone and I try not to say anything bad about people. Mr. Hamilton was brilliant. Mr. Hamilton was our first Treasury Secretary. He knew ultimately what my Secretary of the Treasury knew, that the banking system that he proposed in his economic method to repay the debt and jumpstart the economy in this brand new country with a constitution that was just ratified a couple of years prior my Secretary of the Treasury and also Jefferson's Secretary of the Treasury, Albert Gallatin, said that he initially disagreed with Hamilton as well, but later realized that it was the correct way to go. So Mr. Hamilton did great things for this country. I wish he was still around. We did break over the issue of the bank, and one of the criticisms people have of me is they don't understand what is the underlying reason for my decisions, because in their minds, I'm either changing my mind or I'm waffling back and forth between positions that I don't really, can't really capture. But to my mind, that's not true at all. To my mind, it's an entirely practical decision based on what is needed for the time period that is presented because time goes on and things change. So my decisions are directly related to what's needed at the time and is always directed towards what is best for the people. If there is one thing that you have said during this conversation that every politician should listen to, it is that. This is one of the questions that I was going to ask you about. Because in our time when somebody does that, when they make up their mind and they change it, they call those, that person a flip-flopper. That's what they call that person. And as you look back at a your what? time, a, a flip-flopper. A flip-flopper. That sounds like a tongue twister. Yeah, let me tell you the tongue twister for me. Montpel- you're, where you live, I have to practice saying that. Montpelier? I, I would understand what you were saying if you said Montpelier. I have to say that over and over to get it right. The, but yeah, the, it's a flip-flopper. And I was going to ask you about this because you opposed the National Bank that Hamilton was talking about. And then... Later on in the war, I think around the War of 1812, that was something that absolutely had to happen. I might have my dates wrong there. And then, no, you are, you're generally correct because in, in 18 and 16, the uh, charter had expired and they were going to reconstitute the bank and it was initially overturned. But in 1816, that was when the war was ending and I authorized the initiation of the second bank of the United States. Yeah. 
And there was a time, I, my understanding that was there was a time where you were against the war altogether, but then you realized that it had to happen. And then, of course, there's yes, the... Yes, because the embargoes that we were giving us, I always wanted the economic sanctions to speak for themselves. An irony that I'll have to admit to is that during... One thing that we don't talk about very much are the Barbary Wars, but during Jefferson's administration, when I was Secretary of State, we were dealing with the North African states of Algiers, Tunis, Tripoli, and Morocco. And I almost regret saying this, but I was not in favor of increasing our Navy because I thought that it was too much investment of our national monies into a military purpose. And I think that was the wrong decision. But to change is inherently good. You can't keep the same stance when the situation changes. You have to move with the changing situations that you're given. It's rather redundant, but I guess it's so plain to me that I don't know how else to explain it. Well, and it seems so obvious. You're making it, as you said earlier, very simple because especially in the highest level of responsibility as the president, as the commander-in-chief, to think that all the ideals that you had 10 or 15 or 20 years ago would be exactly the same in today's circumstances, that's crazy. And yet, in our time, there are a lot of people that are criticized when they have a change of heart. And I think that it is courageous for you to stand up and say, hey, that was what I thought then, but that's not right, or it's just not right now. Because it, it seems to me like that was one of your superpowers to be able to do that, to be quite honest with you. Superpowers? A superpower would be a strength. Ah, strength. I'm trying yeah, to... Well, I use my... The biggest muscle in my body, Mr. Dean, is my brain. So that's what I try and use, my brain. So here's a tough one. And uh, maybe it'll probably be easy. You've made all this very simple, actually, so far. My understanding is that when it came to... Do you call the Native Americans of your time? Do you call them Indians in your time? Or we call them Native Americans. What do you call them? Indians. Indians. The Indians in your time. What is your belief on how we're supposed to be integrating with them? Because I understand there were some significant wars that were fought with the Indians. And... When you factor in westward expansion, there was that issue, and there were negotiations to buy some of the land. And what, How do you see us, the Americans, integrating with the Indians? Not very well, unfortunately. Because one, one of the principles, I suppose, and it's an enlightenment principle, is the topic of expansion and manifest destiny. Manifest destiny is a movement towards the claiming what you believe belongs to you. And I believe that ultimately we will be judged as having an egregious mistake that we did not properly factor in that manifest destiny takes away the livelihoods and the property that the Indians consider belong to nature. They don't have the same outlook that we do about the value of land and our history places the value of property as one of the highest to be espoused to so we have not paid the proper attention and given the proper respect 
with the peoples who are indigenous, as you say, to this continent. And the this the bowling over of manifest destiny, starting with the Louisiana Purchase, for example, in Jefferson's administration, just took over, and I think is a, is a good reason why many of them aligned with the Brits was because they were promised things that they would have a better outcome with the British than what we were doing by just taking over their land. So it is not something that I think that they're going to get a fair shake on. As you talk about that and you talk about us, this westward expansion, manifest destiny and all that, when you think of the Brits just taking over the whole world, every piece of land they could get their hands on would become part of the British Empire. Isn't that exactly what we did is we started expanding westward and taking Indian land? Is that not the exact same thing? Yeah, I would see. I wouldn't see why it wouldn't be the same thing. So knowing that when you were taking part in the Louisiana Purchase, when you were assisting with that, is that something that you regret then? No, it's not anything I regret. I think it's a way to strengthen the United States of America. It's a way to bring more peoples to this land and have places for them to live so that we can live under the system of our government. We have attempted to Christianize the, the Indians and take them under our fold, and some of them have come along, and, but many of them have not. When you say that you've attempted to Christianize them, tell me what you mean by that. To live the way we do. What would you do? There's many religious organizations that try and go out and show them the benefits of the deities that their religion espouses. Their great spirit is something different than most of the Western and European world envisions. And it's a kind of a religious colonization movement to convince them that the Christian way is better than their way. And it's successful to some extent and not successful at the same time. Was that a policy of your administration? I don't recall any specific policy decisions that I made regarding that issue. Okay. Let me step back to the, uh, the Federalist Papers. Was there one of the Federalist Essays, was there one or two of them, whether they were yours or Alexander Hamilton's, or were there any of those that stand out that were especially important to you? Or No, I wouldn't say so. Not to me, personally. I think that my bailiwick was to speak on what my vision of the governmental system was, and Hamilton's bailiwick is more of an economic approach to how the government would be effective. The first one has to be important because it sets the precedent for the others. What I will say is that our original plan between Mr. Hamilton and myself was that we would write an essay at a time and collaborate on it and edit it and such and then send it to the papers. But it was not practically implementable in that way because the papers consumed them and wanted them more and more at the rate of three to four a week. And we were not always in close proximity physically to each other. And what it ended up being was that we were writing our own thoughts independently of each other. And because of the pressure of the papers, 
that coincided with the idea that we could get our message across because people wanted to hear the messages was that we wrote them as fast as we could and sent them to the fake papers as fast as we could, three to four times a week. So we didn't know what each other was writing about. And only upon looking back to see some of the commonalities of our stances is what's interesting to me. Yeah, for sure. If you didn't know what you were writing about, were there any things that you wrote that were in contradiction with one another? That is a very good question. I think you just gave me my next reading project is to read The Federalist again. Nothing comes immediately to mind. I'd have to admit on that, Mr. Dean. Okay. Well, it is. In general, we were of the same mind. We took different approaches in some regards. The middle papers were the ones that I wrote. They were mostly about the theory of government systems. And it was Hamilton that we didn't even, we didn't even mention the judiciary, for example, until Hamilton wrote about them in the 70s. The papers that were numbered in the 70s, there was two or three papers where he wrote foundational principles about the judiciary, but much of it was about the legislative branch, which to me was the most important of the branches of the government. So not all of the details were ironed out, so to speak, with the Federalist essays either, even after the Constitution was written. Because most of the attention was on the legislative branch. The executive branch was left open largely because we just trusted George Washington to establish it because the entire country, by and large, trusted his instincts on how to develop it properly. For example, he pushed away from the table, didn't he, after two terms and gave over his presidency to John Adams. And the whole world took note of that. How could you possibly do that? First of all, you didn't take being the monarch when people would have trusted you to do that. And then you had the power and you didn't like it and you pushed away and went back to being a farmer and a planter, which was your preference. The world just simply couldn't wrap their head around that. What happened in the executive and in the judiciary was the least of the studied over all of the branches. I feel like George Washington, when I think about his life, I feel like somebody like me was calling him on one of these smartphone phones and giving him the answers in advance. Because that man had a lot of weight to carry, and somehow he carried it to the last day of his life. What was your relationship with him? I agree. What was my relationship? It was great until it was rocky. Mr. Washington put a lot of faith in my opinions of things very early on. He's 18 years my senior. He was. And very early on in the presidency, he sought my counsel often before he made major decisions. In 1793, the main political issue was the neutrality proclamation, which was our stance on the war between England and France. Some of us thought that we should be loyal to France as France was loyal to us in our cause for seeking liberty. And our mindset was that we envisioned anyway that the French Revolution was going to turn out the same way our revolution did. And so we owed it to the French to support them. And when Washington took a neutral stance, some of us didn't agree. And then the final break between Washington and I was, I have to admit, because it's simply a fact, was his doing, and that was over the Jay Treaty. 
the Jay Treaty had so many mock reciprocities and artifices written into it that it was completely inept in many of our opinions, and he endorsed it and decided one day not to talk to me again. That's it? He just stopped talking to you? That's it. Did you try to get an audience with him again and he just wouldn't see you? No, it's not something a gentleman would do. It was his choice. Wow. So did you ever... Mr. Washington, no. I think we always respected each other throughout our lives, but the closeness of our political relationship was severed permanently. But you never lost... Mr. Washington was lauded by most everyone, but everyone is an individual and nobody's perfect. He, he was known to have a temper. Other people suffered the, the loss of his circle of friendship and knowledge. I was not the only victim. We were not, as men, those of us who founded the country, so to speak, didn't necessarily agree but, or didn't have personalities that meshed or blended very well, but we knew we had to work with each other politically, and we always tried to respect that. But by the time the Jay Treaty came, there wasn't anything left for Washington to believe he could utilize my opinion for because at that point political parties had so been so well established and he was on the opposite end of the spectrum for that. As you look back, even before the revolution and through your presidency and seeing the other presidents, Mr. Adams, Mr. Jefferson, and all the people that have passed through the government in between here and there, who, when you look back, would you say... And I'm going to take Washington out of the equation there, just because I feel like that's easy. Who would you say you respected the most, and who would you say you respected the least? I'm not going to say who I respected the least. That's just not a gentlemanly thing to say. I have my personal opinions, but I don't think I need to share that well, let's with start the world. With the most, then. I don't want to say one person. And I mean, one person immediately comes to mind, of course, Jefferson. But there were many great men that contributed to the founding of our country. There was a, a full dozen people during the talks during the delegates' convention that spoke on a regular basis, and they all had great contributions to make. I think what you're saying is that one person couldn't do it, that it was the union of all these minds at the exact same time that created the great mind that caused all this good to happen. But it does sound like there is a person, maybe the person who you feel didn't carry their weight in the government or maybe wasn't as useful as some of the others? Is there somebody that comes to mind when I say that? You sound like a newspaper reporter. You're still after <laughs> me, aren't you, Mr. Dean? <laughs> I, pro- I promise you I've never been a newspaper reporter. You have a very journalistic attitude. I suppose that maybe I do about this one. Yeah. I'm not going to push you any further on that. I will say no, I'm as gonna a hold, news- I'm going to hold my stance. I think that everyone did what they believed was right. Now, by and large... <laughs> Everyone behind those closed doors eventually understood to some degree that the Articles of Confederation were weak, too weak. What we were after was some sort of republic. That's one thing. Now, once we get to the presidencies, we have the development of the political parties and we have personalities. And I don't think it's my place to criticize someone for a personality that they were born with. Wow, that's interesting. That's what I'll say to, to as much of an answer as I'll give you about who I have a negative thought about. No, that, that is totally fair. In, when you look at the different jobs you've had throughout the years, 
And I, were you a lawyer for a while? No, never a lawyer. But you have a law never degree. Studied, I studied a few books, but I never mentored under any lawyers, never intended to be a lawyer. In fact, I told a good friend of mine from the College of New Jersey that I thought it was, would be better to die a slow death in the desert than be a lawyer. <laughs> but that was just not my, the way that I was made up. I, wasn't, I went to a college that was a theological school. And so what does a man who has the privilege of his father having the means to send him to a university for an advanced education? You're probably going to be a lawyer or you're going to be a minister or you're going to be a doctor. And I wasn't going to be any of those. I had a long period of trying to figure out exactly what I was going to do with my life after college. We had started a discussion about my earlier years, and I suppose if you wanted to revert to that, I could expound a bit. Yeah, I'd love to hear about that. Go ahead. By the way, I got to say this before you tell me, though. Since you were talking about lawyers, you just reminded me of the favorite, my favorite joke that I've ever heard about lawyers. And the difference between lawyers and rats is that there are things that rats won't do. So I, I think you made, I think you made a good choice not being a lawyer. But, but the person that became the lawyer is still a very good friend of mine. Okay. So tell me about your early years. You were going to say something. Oh, my early years are very boring. I, uh, I struggled as a youth as far as my physical condition goes, which carried on throughout my life to this day. So I never fought and physically fought in the cause, but I did use my brain, which apparently is another muscle. And that was fostered through the educational process that I got. My father sent me to a boarding school way out 30 miles away under Donald Robertson, who laid the foundation in a classical education for me in the languages, in the sciences, and the liberal arts, and humanities, and even art and music. And when I came home, I had a private tutor in Montpelier, and his name was Thomas Marchant, and he was a graduate of the College of New Jersey, and he was a proponent of it, and he knew that my father and I were speaking about where I would seek my higher education, and he said, you should consider this college in New Jersey because of John Witherspoon, who was the Scottish Presbyterian minister that I had mentioned earlier, who is the sign of the Declaration of Independence, by the way. And between the fresh air that my father thought would be good for me and this new kind of thinking in a more progressive institution brought me there. And I matriculated at sophomore and graduated in two years, was exhausted and didn't want to, I didn't want to go home because I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. So I hung around and studied directly under President Witherspoon and studied religion in Hebrew mostly for a few more months. Then I went home and tutored my siblings. I'm the oldest. I'm James Madison Jr. So I tutored my brothers and sisters until I finally got into a position in Virginia-level government under Patrick Henry. And Patrick Henry, I was on his council of state, not only for him, but for Governor Jefferson when he was governor during the war. And that, in a nutshell, is my early career. I don't have too many hobbies. I'm not very athletic. I do like to play a game of chess. I do enjoy a glass of wine. I do enjoy conversation, especially the one that we've had. But I'm telling you that I've spoken far too much in this conversation, Mr. And we will have to reconvene at some point when I can hear more of your opinions on things. I tell you what, and I, I do appreciate your time because you have given me so much of it. And I, as much 
even more appreciate your just your contribution to the nation because when you left the nation in a better place than when you got it for sure and you had some big hurdles to jump over so i do thank you for taking this time today and certainly wish you know you and mrs madison the best and is there any last thing that you'd want to add before we wrap this up yes i just Mrs. Madison just caught my attention. She said, make sure that you invite Mr. and Mrs. Dean to Montpelier, that you can come any time and stay as long as you like. I was wondering, because I could hear those people in the background, and I was under the impression that she was throwing some sort of party or something. So please. She is starved for visitors, Mr. Dean. (laughs) Please thank her for for the invitation. You know, that when she was the uh, lady presidentess, which is the title the people gave her, which is rather ironic, don't you think? Because it's rather aristocratic in nature. That but is uh, she was lauded by everyone. nobody. There was nothing to do in the federal city. There's really nothing to do. It's gotten a little better, but during my two terms of the presidency, she threw the best parties. So we had up to 400 people in the Oval Room on a weekly basis. Oh my goodness! So these parties got a nickname called the Squeezes, and we let everybody in. And that was part of the ethos that we were trying to build for this Republican nature that we were initiating under the Constitution and trying to keep going after Jefferson stepped away. And she was a huge part of that. She helped decorate very specifically with Benjamin Latrobe, his wife, and his child. They worked as a family together for the interior decoration of the White House to show the styles that we were espousing, even in the minute details of the carvings in the furniture. And it was really quite, quite a process and Mrs. Madison usually did get her way. And she was the perfect hostess because she's just her nature to be friendly. It's her nature to care for people. It's her nature to make sure that people are happy and that she's just a consummate woman in every way. Plus her intelligence allows me to give her carte blanche to run the social environment with a keen eye towards moving the country forward under my administration's principles. Well, it's no wonder that you say that so I don't want to end the conversation without giving the credit that Mrs. Madison is due. It's no wonder that you say that she's one of your topics to discuss because she certainly was an extraordinary woman. And Sir, again, I just want to thank you for all this time today. And if I can find a way to make it to one of Mrs. Madison's parties, we will certainly be there. Do you like ice cream, Mr. D? What flavors does she make? We have a whole slew of flavors. I'm not sure if you're quite familiar with some of the flavors that we serve. It's not necessarily a dessert. could be an hors d'oeuvre. As it should be. You like asparagus? In ice cream? You like asparagus? No. Do you like tomato? Yes. Do you like oysters? No. Then we will serve you tomato ice cream for an hors d'oeuvre. And then you could have a chocolate or vanilla or strawberry are relatively standard for dessert. Your choice. We'll have all three available. It sounds like a deal. <laughs> Thank you, sir, again for all your time. And I wish you and your family the absolute best. And the same to you, sir. When James Madison left the presidency, the United States was more or less in order. We were not fighting a war, the citizens were prosperous, and the country was growing. Historians accuse Madison of being a flip-flopper. But as you can see, he wasn't changing his mind or his approach casually. He was just adjusting to the times as new information became available. 
He was assessing the challenges of building our nation and then responding with what was right regardless of the political consequences, which is why he rates so high as a president. Thanks for listening, and if you haven't subscribed yet, do it now. I'm Tony Dean, and until next time, I'm history.